Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Layman's Historian, episode 23, Clash of the Titans. Last time, we saw how Rome built a fleet based off of a captured Carthaginian quinquereme in order to challenge Carthage's age-old supremacy on the water. Equipping their ships with their new Corvus boarding bridges, the Romans won an important victory at the Battle of Mylae, stunning the Carthaginians who up until then had thought little of Rome's upstart naval efforts. However, the war was still far from won, for on Sicily the conflict continued to stagnate, the Romans and Carthaginians both experiencing varying successes and reverses. By now, the First Punic War was in its eighth year, with no definite end in sight. Although both sides had suffered heavy losses in the fighting, neither Italy nor North Africa had been seriously damaged or threatened during the eight years of conflict, allowing each side to continue to pour resources and manpower unabated into Sicily. Ever in search of a decisive killing blow, Rome determined that she would have to bypass Sicily and take the war straight to Carthage's home soil. Despite the boosted confidence in her recently launched navy, Rome's plan to invade North Africa was inherently risky. Her only previous overseas campaign had been the invasion of Sicily during the first phase of the war, a crossing of only a few miles. By contrast, Carthage lay over 380 miles across the sea from Regium, the port where the troops would embark. To keep the army supplied with food and provisions over such a distance would be a feat in and of itself, but when coupled with the threat of storms and a well-trained and well-equipped enemy fleet patrolling on all sides, disaster lurked around every corner. Nonetheless, the Romans felt that this would be the best way to bring Carthage to her knees, so she set about methodically raising her forces. Calling all hands on deck, the Romans mustered a huge armada of 330 ships, mostly quinqueremes with a few triremes and a set of hexaremes, which served as flagships for the consuls. With approximately 300 rowers and 120 marines per ship, the Roman force totaled an astonishing 140,000 men total. To show the importance Rome placed on this expedition, both Roman consuls, Lucius Manlius Volso Longus and Marcus Attilius Regulus, sailed in joint command of the fleet and army. Meanwhile, Carthage's dockyards had been busy replacing the losses suffered at the Battle of Mylae. Not to be outdone again by the Romans, the Carthaginians outfitted a fleet of 350 warships which were manned by approximately 150,000 rowers, sailors, and marines. There is some debate on the numbers on the Carthaginian side, since it would imply that they increased the number of marines on board each vessel to match the Romans, something that seems unlikely since Polybius specifically states that the Carthaginians outfitted their vessels for their favored strategy of speedy naval maneuvers focused on ramming. Despite this, most historians accept that Polybius' numbers for both navies are more or less trustworthy, 
albeit possibly a little high. When news of Rome's plans reached Carthage, memories of Agathocles' invasion 54 years before must have caused great alarm in the capital city. The Syracusan tyrant and his handful of mercenaries have been able to wreak havoc on the rich fields of wealthy cities even when Carthage had complete control of the sea. Now, Rome threatened her with a force over ten times the size of Agathocles's. The native Libyan and Numidian tribes, always rather dubious allies, could not be counted on to side with Carthage in a crisis and might even join with a foreign army. Except in Carthage herself, the North African cities were not fortified to resist a determined invasion for a lengthy amount of time, and in the Carthaginian mind, a Roman invader could easily subjugate their entire population relatively quickly. Even if none of these ominous outcomes occurred, at the least Carthage would have to recall precious mercenary troops from Sicily to bolster her home defense, further hampering her war effort in that theater. Thus, the Carthaginian commanders knew that they would have to engage the Roman fleet before it left Sicily, and all must be risked in a decisive naval battle to keep the Romans as far from the Libyan shores as possible. Polybius states that, with the Romans committed to overpowering the Carthaginians, and the Carthaginians committed to stopping the Romans from reaching Libya, the ensuing clash was inevitable. While the Carthaginian fleet departed to intercept the would-be invaders, the Roman fleet sailed along the coast of Sicily from Masana down past Syracuse before arriving at Ignomus, from which they intended to take the shortest route over the open sea to North Africa. This course turned out to be rather obvious, though, since when the Romans reached Ignomus, they found the Carthaginian fleet blocking their path. While at Agnomus, the Romans paused long enough to embark picked veteran troops from the land army to serve as marines for the upcoming naval battle. Besides the troops, the Romans would also have to convey the horses, supplies, and armaments necessary to sustain their force until they could secure a beachhead in North Africa. Since the Roman fleet would have to serve as transports as well as warships, they divided their land troops into four squadrons, named the 1st Legion, 2nd Legion, 3rd Legion, and 4th Legion. In order to protect their formation from Carthaginian attack, the Roman consuls arranged their ships in a triangular wedge formation, with the 1st and 2nd Legions forming the sides of the triangle while the 3rd Legion, which towed the horse transports, made up the base. The 4th Legion sailed in a separate line just behind the base of the triangle, as a kind of reserve, aptly nicknamed the Triarii, a word taken from Rome's land army, where the 3rd line of the legionary formation, composed of older veteran soldiers, served as a reserve and was known as the Triarii. The Roman consuls Regulus and Manlius sailed in their respective hexeremes at the tip of the triangle, leading the charge. In order to combat this, the Carthaginian admirals deployed their ships in a long line along the front of the Roman wedge 
except for the left flank, which was bent at an angle along the coastline. The right flank was composed of the fastest quinqueremes Carthage had available, and since these stretched out to sea in a single-file line, they easily outflanked the Roman wedge. Here, Hanno, the same general who had lost the Battle of Acragas, was given the task of sailing around the Roman fleet to attack it from the side and rear. The center and left were commanded by another Hamilcar, who acted as the overall admiral of the fleet. Hamilcar and the Roman consul Regulus had actually met before earlier in the year in a battle off of Cape Tyndarus, where the Carthaginian had managed to isolate and destroy nine Roman ships before the main Roman fleet arrived. In the ensuing skirmish, both sides lost several ships in a closely fought encounter. Now, they were to rematch off the coast of Sicily in a mighty showdown. Since the Battle of Agnomus is easier to follow once you see a picture, I would recommend that you check out the episode page on the Layman's Historian website for diagrams which will allow you to better understand what transpired in the battle. You can find a link to that page in the description to this episode. Hamilcar's experience at Cape Tyndarus must have inspired him with the idea that if he could break up the Roman fleet and isolate the individual ships, he could nullify the dangerousness of the Roman corvus. Meanwhile, the right and left flanks would loop around the sides of the Roman formation and fall upon their flank and rear. If he could manage to upset the Roman formation and separate their ships, Hamilcar felt confident that the superior Carthaginian seamanship and ships would be able to sink their isolated Roman counterparts despite the threat of the Corvus. All of Hamilcar's plan hinged on the fact that the Carthaginian ships, once again fully equipped for naval maneuvering rather than boarding actions, would be able to avoid the Roman corvi long enough to strike their ships broadside without becoming entangled. According to Polybius, before battle commenced, the Carthaginian commanders briefly addressed their troops, stating that if they won, the war would likely be contained to Sicily, while if they lost, their homeland and families would be endangered by Roman swords. Polybius states that it was in a mood of combined confidence and dread that the Carthaginians shipped out. As the battle cries sounded across the sea, a quarter of a million men, all told, prepared to clash in what each side viewed as the pivotal contest of the war. 680 mighty warships must have turned the sea into a veritable floating forest as each captain and crew strained to execute their orders. The Carthaginians, Determined to separate the Romans and pick them off with their nimbler ships and expertly drilled crews, trusted in their centuries of honed maritime skill, while the Romans, upstarts to the sea, counted on their blunt, brutal tactic of pinning the enemy with the corvus and slogging it out on the decks of the ships. It was the expert versus the amateur, Roman practicality versus Carthaginian finesse. 
Each side had expended enormous resources in money and manpower to outfit their gigantic fleets. And now, the entire war seemed to hang in the balance as both sides risked it all on one decisive battle. As the Romans approached the Carthaginian line, the two consuls immediately noticed that the Carthaginian center had sacrificed strength for length and was thus extremely thin. With characteristic Roman decisiveness, the consuls sounded the charge to exploit this perceived weakness in the Carthaginian formation. As the Romans bore down upon the Carthaginian ships, Hamilcar ordered his own ships to feign the retreat, tempting the cheering Romans to redouble their efforts to catch the fleeing enemy. As the Romans continued their pursuit, the gaps between the four legions grew larger until the sides of the triangle, composed of the first and second legions, had left the slower third legion, which towed the horse transports, far behind. In the meantime, the Carthaginian right and left flanks sailed swiftly past the oncoming first and second legion, keeping well out of the range of the looming corvi. When Hamilcar judged that the Romans had been separated sufficiently, he signaled for the Carthaginian ships to cease retreating and attack. With frightening speed, the Carthaginian ships swerved about and sailed boldly into the Roman lines, smashing into their hulls and snapping rows of oars, breaking the unfortunate rowers' backs in the process. After the bronze-beaked rams had crushed the Roman hulls, the exultant Carthaginian ships would quickly reverse to disentangle themselves from the Roman ship, allowing the seawater to surge into the wounded vessel, as the unlucky Romans aboard weighed whether they should remain to sink, or, stripping off their armor, trust themselves to the churning billows below. Behind this first engagement, the Carthaginian left flank fell upon the third legion, who, afraid of becoming bogged down with the horse transports, cut their towing ropes and rowed to the coast, where they ranged themselves with their backs to the shore, prows and corvi facing outwards to keep the oncoming Carthaginians at bay. The Carthaginian right flank, under Hanno, crashed into the reserve 4th legion, who were soon hard-pressed to fend off the darting ships and gleaming rams of their foes. Likely these reserve troops also had to defend the now-abandoned horse transports, an unenviable task considering that the Carthaginian ships now wreaked havoc among the helpless vessels. Although the situation appeared dire for the Romans, unbeknownst to them, the Carthaginian captains had made a fatal mistake. Historians speculate that Hamilcar's true intention was for his flanking wings to close in on the rear of the 1st and 2nd legions once they had been sufficiently separated from their comrades in the rear. Had they done so, the Carthaginians could have annihilated the vanguard of Roman warships before turning to deal with the 3rd and 4th legions piecemeal, decimating the Roman army and literally sinking all hopes of a Roman invasion. Why they disobeyed this perceived plan remains a mystery, but some scholars speculate that the Roman 3rd and 4th legion had remained close enough to prevent the full encirclement of the 1st and 2nd legion, thus forcing the Carthaginian flanks to engage them 
instead of completing the encirclement as Hamilcar had planned. Instead of this, three distinct engagements now ensued, each separated from the other by a significant distance. In the ensuing confusion, it soon became evident that without their planned reinforcements, the weakened Carthaginian center would have to give way. Despite the encouragements and example of Hamilcar himself, the Carthaginian ships were once again unable to counter the Roman Corvus. Pivoting on the prow of the ship, the Corvus would come crashing down on the Carthaginian decks. Moments later, a detachment of battle-hardened Roman marines would surge over the boarding bridge, fighting desperately with the Carthaginian crews on decks slippery with blood. The air would be filled with the cracking and splintering of wooden hulls pierced by rams, the war cries of marines and sailors, the dull booms of corvi breaking through decks, the ring of iron upon iron, and the thundering footsteps of countless men as they grappled hand to hand with the foe. On the crowded ships, many men would have been knocked overboard by the press, sinking swiftly beneath the surface due to the weight of their arms and armor. Others would lose their balance on the pitching ships, only to be dispatched by their more fortunate adversaries, all while horns, shouts, and screams rose in a confused roar over the sea. The battle raged fiercely along the entire coast. The Romans, conscious that the eyes of both their consuls were upon them, exerted themselves to new feats of valor, while the Carthaginians grimly met their onslaught with the knowledge that they alone stood as their homeland's best defense against the ruthless invaders. Finally, despite a gallant resistance, the Carthaginian center crumbled in the face of the determined Roman opposition. While his colleague Manlius secured the captured Carthaginian vessels, the Roman consul Regulus ordered the ships which had emerged unscathed to turn about and aid the beleaguered 4th Legion. Smashing into the Carthaginian rear with triumphant cries, the Romans routed the Carthaginian ships and forced them to withdraw. Along the coastline, a similar fate met the remaining Carthaginians who had pinned the 3rd Legion against the coast. Once he had secured the captured enemy vessels, Manlius turned on the western flank of the remaining Carthaginians, while Regulus fell upon their eastern flank. Surrounded on three sides, the final Carthaginian squadron relinquished the field to the victorious Romans. Twenty-four Roman ships had been sunk, while the Carthaginians lost ninety-four vessels due to either sinking or capture. Based on these numbers, it is estimated that 10,000 Romans had fallen, while 30,000 to 40,000 Carthaginians had been either killed or captured. Egnomus ranks as the largest naval battle of antiquity and one of the largest naval battles of all time. In one colossal engagement, over a quarter of a million men and nearly 700 ships vied with each other for control of the Mediterranean. As a comparison, the Battle of Salamis, fought by the Greeks against the invading Persians in 480 BC, had 600 to 700 ships with approximately 200,000 men present. 
at the Battle of Lepanto in 1517, 484 ships and 150,000 Christians and Turks clashed off the coast of Greece. The Battle of Jutland in World War I saw 250 ships and 100,000 English and Germans collide in the frigid North Sea off the coast of Denmark. In World War II, 367 American, Australian, and Japanese ships with 200,000 men fought in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, the largest naval battle in terms of tonnage of ships present and ships sunk. When compared with these examples, the number of men and ships involved at Ignomus appears staggering, even by modern standards. A stark testament to the sheer volume of resources the ancients could bring to bear in their wars. Now that they had won the largest naval battle in history, the route to North Africa lay wide open before the Roman expeditionary force. After pausing briefly to repair their ships in Sicily, they embarked across the sea. The battered Carthaginian fleet could do little to stop them, and within a few days, Roman sandals splashed ashore on the North African coast. Carthage, though, was not defeated yet, and her towering walls, limitless money, and professional mercenaries presented a stiff challenge to the coming onslaught. Next time, we will cover how the Romans fared in their inaugural expedition to North Africa, and how Carthage took the radical step of appointing a Spartan adventurer to supreme command in a last-ditch effort to save herself from imminent defeat. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to The Layman's Historian and follow me on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest updates on the show. Also, if you get a chance, make sure to post a review on iTunes. It really helps the show. Until next time, take care and read more history.